Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. If you would not be forgotten as soon as you are dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth the writing. That's Benjamin Franklin, one of America's founding fathers and the subject of filmmaker Ken Burns' latest documentary series for PBS. He'll tell us about it right after we learn why humans are wiping out insects. A planet-wide disaster so stupid it may kill us off first. In his new book, The Insect Crisis, Oliver Millman details how insect populations are crashing because of pesticides, climate change, and habitat loss. Stay with us for a couple of great conversations. Welcome to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. You like to eat, don't you? Blueberries, ice cream, chocolate. Californians who've been paying attention know that bees are an essential pollinator for our food supply. But we may not be quite so clear on the fact that bees are insects or that they're not the only essential pollinators or that we're wiping insects off the face of the earth, which could wipe us off the face of the earth. Are you paying attention now? Oliver Millman, environment reporter for The Guardian and author of The Insect Crisis, is here to read us the riot act and urge us to motivate and be better before it's too late. Oliver, thank you for joining us. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm going to guess, just to start off, that you've heard this little ditty from the poet Ogden Nash. God, in his wisdom, made the fly, and then he forgot to tell us why. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, many of us think of flies as being um, uh, kind of pointless or annoying, and certainly there are lots of them. I mean, uh, in my book, I kind of look at how there's a type of assassin fly which um, liquefies the organs of other insects. There's 7,000 types of this one particular fly, and that's more than all the mammals types of mammals in the world. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of flies, um, but they certainly have their uses, um, even if we don't think about it very often. And I, I guess it's fair to say that increasingly scientists are beginning to understand more about why the fly was created or what purpose it serves. I didn't realize before reading this book that three quarters of all the known animals in the world, at least for at present, are insects. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's about a million named species. Uh, that's only the tip of the iceberg, though. Scientists think there could be 5 million, maybe 10 million, maybe even 30 million uh, species of insects out there. We just don't quite know what kind of uh, incredible beasties there are out there um, undiscovered. Um, but there's certainly lots already that have been discovered and, and they do incredible things. They have incredible abilities. And from a kind of selfish human point of view, they do very important things for us. They pollinate a third of the food we eat, for example, um, much of the kind of colourful stuff you find on your, your plates, the nutritious stuff. And flies are pollinators. Um, they, you know, bees get all the kind of headlines for pollination, but um, flies um, are very, really important pollinators too. Uh, what, do, what do flies pollinate that we like to eat? Uh, they, they help pollinate pretty much all kinds of things really um you know you've got um blueberries melons cherries uh i mean lots of kind of fruit and veg uh, out there that requires fly a fly pollination um maybe the most important one is uh for, for many people would be chocolate the cacao plant uh, is um is pollinated by the tiny midge they said it's kind of small enough to get in there and, and pollinate it uh, so this kind of multi-billion dollar industry is resting on the very slender shoulders of this tiny midge without it it would all all fall apart and we'd have no hershey bars or lint chocolate or anything else like that i i can't get over the fact oliver that we're, we're just beginning to understand how important insects are right around the same time that we're beginning to understand that they're collapsing towards extinction yeah, that's right. And I think probably I, I may be as guilty as anybody on that as being an, an environmental writer. You get drawn to the big kind of flashy, charismatic creatures of our, of our world, the orangutans, the polar bears, the grizzly bears, you know, the lions and giraffes and so on. Um, and, and we all kind of know the conservation status of, of a lot of those kind of big uh, charismatic creatures. But uh, insects have been this kind of unknown to scientists in terms of their conservation status uh, up until relatively recently. I mean, it seemed pointless to count them because they seemed everywhere, right? I mean, uncomfortably so sometimes. They, they're kind of closest animals to us other than maybe our cats and dogs. Um, and, and a lot of those interactions are, are kind of annoying uh, or, uh, you know, unwelcome in, in many respects. But um, recently, scientists have been discovering these quite startling declines in insect numbers. Um, and, and now it's got to the point where the United Nations is warning we're facing a food security uh, crisis this century because of a drop in pollination levels at a time when obviously the world's population, human population, is increasing. So, um yeah, we're, we're, we're heading for, for, for some troubling times unless um, these trends change. Well, California, as you know, is a big agricultural state. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how uh, the way we live in California today, the, the farming and also uh, the uh, suburban lifestyle uh, has played a role in this insect apocalypse. So why don't we why don't we start with the cute fuzzy bee? And I, I'm thinking particularly of neonicotinoids. Did I say that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So this is a kind of class of chemical and insecticide. There's, there's several different variants of it uh, that is sprayed uh, liberally across uh, farmland across the U.S. But of course, um, you know, the Central Valley in California is the kind of parland really of uh, U.S. agriculture when it comes to um, um, fruit vegetables. Um, and so, yeah, neonics, as they're known for short, they're, they're 7,000 times more toxic to bees than DDT, which is this infamous uh, chemical that was um, 
villainized in uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring book in the 1960s, was blamed for the decline of bald eagles in the US and uh, was subsequently restricted in its use. It was one of the big environmental victories of the, of the 60s and 70s. Um, but um, what we've replaced them with is a class of chemicals that's even worse for insects. I mean, they send them deranged, uh, it sends scrambles, breeze bees' brains, so they're unable to find their hives, they cannot fly as long, they unable to kind of uh, use their amazing logistical abilities to go between plants for, for pollination purposes. And it kills them in huge numbers, as well as pretty much everything else these chemicals touch. They're water-soluble, so as soon as it rains, the, the, they leach out of the, of the plants, the crops that they're, they're put upon, and they, they get into soil, they get into waterways. They're blamed for a, 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 a steep drop in insect numbers around agricultural areas. Um, and for not much use either we're using these chemicals in vast quantities u.s um, agricultural land is 48 times more toxic than it was 25 years ago and yet crop yields aren't going up by the same amount you're not growing more food for the amount of toxin you're using so uh, it's very frustrating situation for entomologists uh, and those who actually look at farming practices in with a more kind of critical eye Given the fact that, that uh, the use of these pesticides isn't leading to bigger yields, why haven't farmers woken up to this and, and changed their, their practices? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be anti-farmer here. I don't, I don't particularly blame farmers. I mean, they are sold these products, these seeds really coated in neonics from the very get-go. It's not like they're choosing to kind of go out there, buy sprays in many respects, and then douse their fields with them. They're sold these seeds by uh, large agricultural corporations. They increasingly shape the way that we think about food and how we grow food and how we consume food. Um, and so they're told pretty strongly by the big ag that, you know, you need these seeds coated with neonics. Uh, if not, you can have huge pest outbreaks. Your yields will fall. Um, they're marketed to very heavily. Um, and often they don't even know what's on their seeds. Um, they just, you know, sow what they've been given. So uh, the kind of upshot of that is that neonics are everywhere. They've been found in spinach. They've been found in baby food. Um, people's urine in China was tested. And it's, it's there. It's in waterways. Um, it's, it's kind of everywhere. We've, we've made this, uh, these chemicals ubiquitous without really a, a huge benefit for doing so. And as you say, we, we can't just blame big ag or big chemical. I don't know if that's a thing, right? There's just three chemical major manufacturers. But but I'm thinking of, right, the singer Joni Mitchell, you know, who wrote, we paved paradise and put up a parking lot. And there are a lot of parking lots all over the Golden State that, you know, basically contribute to another prop problem for insects, habitat habitat loss. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one of the most interesting parts of writing this book for me was the kind of cultural aspect that how we view the world uh, is so diametrically opposed to how insects thrive, really. I mean, we order kind of, uh, we value kind of order and tidiness and everything in being this right place uh, and kind of domination of the land. So therefore, you know, we have this monocultural farming practice where we grow single uh, crops with with no weeds on the side. Weed is a subjective term. It's a, you know a plant we think is in the wrong place. For for insects, that's shelter, that's food. But we've got rid of all that. Uh, you know, we've put up parking lots everywhere, like you say. We've cut down about a third of the world's forests since the dawn of the industrial era. Um, we've essentially kind of remodeled the world in in our kind of own image for our own ends, and um, that's um, you know it, it suits us in a kind of 
tight in our session with kind of tidiness and everything being ordered and productive for us. But insects enjoy, enjoy scruffiness. They enjoy uh, a variety of different plants. They enjoy and a tangle of wildflowers, you know, those beautiful wildflower meadows you see in some untouched places, that, that's kind of an ideal place for insects, which is why you often see them by the side of highways or the side of railway lines, because that's kind of the only places we haven't really manicured to death yet. And um, yeah, so the way we view the world, unfortunately, has um, come up uh, pretty strongly against the way that um, insects need the world to function to, to survive. One of our listeners tweets, I have a bee, butterfly and bird garden that uses probably too much water, but it's my contribution. I can't tell if there's fewer bees because we have so many different species of bees that visit our garden and trees here. But but ants, the little black ones are invasive, right? Yeah, there are lots of invasive insects. Spotted lanternflies on the East Coast are a problem. Yeah, they're, they're obviously fire ants push into the southern states of the U.S. Um, I mean, no, the, this kind of crisis in the insect world is not going to do away with all insects they're going to be winners and losers uh, unfortunately we're kind of reshaping the world uh, to make it more conducive for uh, cockroaches and uh, mosquitoes and certain types of ants uh, and less friendly towards you know butterflies and bumblebees and 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 other sorts of insect that we we value and we we, we consider useful and beautiful and of utilitarian um, use uh, so yeah, we're not getting rid of everything, but I think the mix that we are creating isn't going to be very um, helpful for us in the future. I suppose that's one way of putting it, right? Like we're forcing Mother Nature to choose and the bees, the mm. butterflies, the beetles go bye-bye, uh, replaced yeah. with the critters that that, that uh, can adapt to the changes humans have wrought. We're talking about the insect crisis, a new book from Oliver Millman, environment reporter for The Guardian. Uh, what concerns do you have about the insect apocalypse? What solutions would you like to be a part of? Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. But whatever you do, don't touch that dial. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro talking today with Oliver Millman, environment reporter for The Guardian and author of a grim and gripping new book called The Insect Crisis. Uh, one hopeful note I suppose we can introduce into this conversation, Oliver, is, is that during the pandemic lockdowns uh, all over the globe, we, we saw a bit of a bounce back for insects. 
Yeah, that's right. I think we all remember those kind of early days of the the pandemic where we saw kind of wild animals start roaming into the, the center of cities uh, in, in various places around the world as people departed. And it was um, particularly so for, for insects. And a kind of reminder that if we just ease off a little bit, um, they can come bouncing back. And that, I think that is a uh, a note of hope in this that if we just give them a little bit of breathing space um they they can they can find a way i mean they are the great survivors after all they've survived five great extinctions this planet has seen they preceded the dinosaurs they outlived the dinosaurs they are you know extremely adaptable and um, we just are assaulting them on so many fronts that um you know they're facing the greatest crisis they've ever um been part of so uh if we just um ease off a little bit uh, you know, cut the grass a little less, spray fewer pesticides, um, try and try and let things go a little bit in terms of um, habitat habitat um, reformation or destruction, and act on climate change as well, which is obviously a huge issue in itself. If we can do those things, we can give insects a chance. Well, Oliver, the phone lines are lighting up. I think it's a good time to go to them now. Why don't we talk first w- with Becky in Oakland? Yeah, hi. Thanks for this wonderful program. I've been inventorying the insects and spiders on my property in Oakland for the past 10 years, taking photographs every season. And I have noticed a steep decline in certain small beneficial insects like the snake fly, which is a wonderful beneficial. Lacewings, praying mantises, many of them I am just not seeing the way I used to see them. And I have diverse, I have a very diverse plant landscape. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite wild and unkempt. Um, and I'm wondering if you could suggest ways for us to really pay attention to the less charismatic creatures that really are disappearing, and spiders as well. I've noticed a real decrease in the variety of spiders. I'll take my answer yeah. off the air. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a wonderful question. And, and I'm so glad you, you, you'll keep an eye on those um, smaller, uh, less heralded, but very important creatures, because we often do overlook them. If you think about there being a million named species of insect, how many of them do we think of fondly? I mean, bumblebees, maybe certainly in California, monarch butterflies um, are hugely popular across the US too. And in, and in Mexico, uh, unfortunately, that migration is kind of 1% of what it once was in the 1980s, which is horrendous. So people are taking to planting milkweed and so on and, and you know, trying to restore habitat for monarch butterflies. Um, you, it's hard to imagine people making such a huge effort for lacewings uh, and other kind of less famous insects. But I think if we do kind of broad umbrella moves that can help uh, ourselves as well as insects, they will be caught up in a beneficial uh, uh, results. So, you know, protecting habitat, planting uh, native plants and native pollinators like um, easing off on chemicals, that kind of thing, not raking your yard. I mean, lots of insects like gathering under leaves in, in, in people's backyards. I mean, there's, there's things that people can do in a, on a kind of small scale that can really, um, can really help all, t- all types of insects. I can imagine with this audience, Oliver, that people are taking notes right now (laughs) and putting it on their to-do list. Thank you so much for that, Becky. Uh, Let's talk to Mike in San Francisco. Hi, Mike. Hi there. Yeah. uh, You know, for Bay Area residents, I want to say that the the most dramatic visible decline that I've noticed 
um, in the last 30 years is, for example, when I was a kid, we took family vacations up north to Lassen and uh, Shasta, and we drive through the Central Valley on I-5 and Marysville on 99, and the windshield would get so splattered with, with dragonflies and bees and all sorts of bugs, we would have to stop two times, sometimes maybe three times. This is in the summer. And uh, when you drive through there these days, you don't, it's, it's not like that at all. They're, they're, the, the loss of bugs is so dramatic, you don't even have to stop and clean your windshield. So yeah. that's where everyday folks can really see, it, can really see a difference. And uh, great show. Signing off. Thanks. Thanks so much, Mike. I have to say, Oliver, I, I have uh, observed the same thing uh, driving on I-5. There are just so many fewer bug splats on my windshield. Yeah, and I feel that's become the kind of shorthand for the insect crisis that people can kind of grasp onto um, quite easily. It's kind of like the the idea of po- the polar bear on on a, a small patch of ice being a kind of symbol of climate change. The windshield effect is what scientists call this kind of loss of splatted bugs on the on the windshield. Uh, and yeah, you, you speak to people of a certain age, uh, and you know you you know in our childhoods you would remember that um, up until even fairly recently, you'd remember there the being huge months of bugs on, on the windshield. But um, I think our expectations are shifting now. I mean, I, I drove around Montana um, last year for, for about for about a week in a very kind of sparsely populated state. There wasn't a single bug that hit my windshield. It was really striking to me afterwards. Um, and I did speak to a scientist in, for the book as well who actually looked to quantify this and put it into literature. And he, he's undertaken experiments since 1997, driving up and down the same stretch of road in uh, Denmark and counting the, the number of bugs that hit his windshield. And he found a, an enormous loss, 97% decline since uh, uh, 1997, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and, and, and shows that it's not just anecdotes. It's, it really seems to be happening out there. This here, more of a comment than a question. Noel tweets, can we finally ban neonicotinoids? I'm going to get to say that correctly before the end of this segment. <laughs> or will we continue to ignore the science? Um, another listener asks, the pet medication Brevecto is ingested by dogs to ward off ticks, fleas, and other parasites. Have there been any studies of its impact on insects when it's passed into the environment through pet waste. I know they've done studies on rats, this listener says. Oh, that's a really good question. I'm not sure about that, about that, about that particular um, uh, drug, uh, that, that's the chemical use there. But certainly the way that uh, U.S. regulations are, are, are framed, um, there they, lacks the precautionary principle that you find in the European Union, for example, where uh, manufacturers would have to show there wouldn't be uh, huge uh, impacts to life, including insects. And indeed, three of the worst uh, neonicotinoids for bees have been banned in the European Union. Uh, the EPA in the US is about to reauthorize them for another 15 years. So uh, there is a kind of stark difference between uh, what's happening in the US in terms of its approach to regulation of these chemicals and um, other countries around the world. Let's take another phone call. Peggy in Sebastopol. Wonderful program. You know, I have been very inspired by Douglas Talmay's books. Uh, uh, an, an entomologist, I'm, I'm sure your guest is familiar with, um, mm. how he has brought home to me uh, the the interdependence of of all the uh, ecology on, on insects. How uh, his latest book on, on oaks, how oaks support insect life. In general, he talks about native species, 
supporting um, uh, planting native species, supporting insect life, which in turn supports all manner of uh, other life, such as birds and and mammals. It it and he then his his message, which I found very inspiring, is that everyone, even people in cities can do things by planting native species, reducing their lawns, uh, replacing them, and so forth. Uh, everyone can be a part of this solution. It, it, talking about uh, nature in your backyard. So I, I'd like your guests to comment on Doug Ptolemy's work. Yeah, sure. I mean, I spoke to Doug, Doug for the book. Yeah, he's a great guy, obviously very knowledgeable of this area. Um, and he's completely right. I mean, insects essentially underpin life as we know it. I mean, we think about the pollination of our foods. That's the kind of foremost of our of our minds. But they they really knit together the, the world as we know it, really, in terms of how it functions. I mean, they do a lot of kind of unglamorous background work of kind of breaking down waste, uh, you know, dead bodies, feces and so on. One researcher told me that without them, we would be you know, swimming in a world of poop with dead Uncle Jeremy floating on past. It would be a particularly grim place without insects in that respect. But they also help cycle nutrients through kind of soils and plants. They keep forests and grasslands kind of vibrant. Uh, and obviously they're food themselves for um, for other animals. There's been declines in bird numbers in many countries around the world because of a lack of insects to eat. Uh, and that doesn't just affect birds. It affects uh, amphibians and other creatures and we're part of that food chain as well so yeah Doug's Doug's entirely right about uh, the importance of that and and certainly the importance of doing you know your little bit to, to help out where you can and as you've written we're not just talking about the possible collapse of our food system globally uh, we're talking about the potential loss of medicines that could save us from antibiotic resistance yeah that's right it was one of the surprising things for me for sure I mean we may all hate cockroaches, um, but they actually contain properties within them that um, are extremely adept at warding off uh, disease and chemical attack. And uh, scientists uh, are hopeful that they'll be able to repurpose um, that for um, uh, dr drugs that can help with antibiotic resistance. Uh, you know, bee venom uh, is also a potential um, uh, uh, restorative um uh, medicine for um, cats and cancers as well. So uh, there's this kind of vast trove of medicines out there that have been untapped, really, because we haven't really looked into them for insects. But um, scientists are very, very sure that there's an enormous amount out there that we could um, could be using if, if only we have the insects around to, to, to use them. Let's take another call. Joe in San Mateo. Hi, Joe. Can you hear us? I've noticed. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, yes. Go ahead. Okay, hello. Um, I'm not sure if well, possibly it's all related. Uh, roughly about the 90s, the chemical fipronil started getting used for termites. It targets the trophallaxis, the uh, method which the insect uses to feed as a social creature. And bees use the same thing. And that's, I mean, all the don't hit the fan roughly around the 90s, it seems. That's kind of my comment. <laughs> so, so uh, I'll, uh, you know, you can hear how many of our listeners are quite sophisticated about the, the kind of pesticides that we're, we're using as consumers or consuming as consumers. Um, and yet it, it seems like our regulators are not keeping up. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think it's important to note that there's only so many safeguards you can put in place with these kind of chemicals. I mean, you you start spraying something and it's going to invariably hit something the insect is going to interact with or pick up. I mean, it's quite easy for chemicals to get into pollen, which is then obviously shared by bees. And once it's shared by bees within a hive, you have a whole hive that's been affected. Um, So, yeah, I mean, these, these chemicals are out there i mean we a lot of them we barely know what they're doing to us let alone to insects so um we've got a long way to to go to find out their full implications and and further still it feels to actually regulate them properly i mean it feels like the us is well behind on that because of this the entrenched power of um agricultural uh, corporations and and the kind of inertia and status quo of governmental agencies well, let's go back to the phones now and an interesting question from Alexander in Richmond. Hi, Alexander, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you very much for taking my call. Good morning. Good morning. I, uh, my question is regarding uh, laboratory science and whether or not insects are being bred in labs and is it possible to perhaps genetically tweak them so that they can survive, although that might just be throwing another wrench into the whole mix. <laughs> yes, I mean, that work is doing, but for the opposite uh, reasons. Um, uh, mosquitoes are being genetically uh, engineered so that they cannot reproduce. Um, there's been trials of this in Florida and, and, and looks like there's going to be one in California too. Um, so that's, uh, that's work that's going underway. Uh, through genetic modification. I did speak to a scientist who was working for 20 years on finding ways to modify them just to kill them out until she had what she said an epiphany where she thought, well, you know, mosquitoes are, have their use too. As much as we revile them, they, they are an important part of the food chain. They pollinate certain things. Um, to just simply kill them all out would be uh, harmful. But um, yeah, I mean, there are there certainly is um, genetic uh, modification work doing, but it's mainly aimed at some killing insects rather than reviving them, I think. Let's get to some of the comments we've been uh, pulling in. Uh, and, you know, I'll just roll through a few of them, Oliver, so you don't have to answer each one as we go. Uh, a listener tweets, I'm concerned about the decline in butterflies. I'm trying to learn how not to mess with their cocoons, which we can't see. Gino writes, I live in Daly City. My yard used to be covered with snails. Now, over the last 10 years, there are none. Robert writes, to survive in this world, we have to stop thinking we have dominion over other species and rather start acting like we are one of many. All have to live in harmony. Uh, Build has a question for you. Will proposals to farm insects for human consumption help or hurt their prospects for survival? Counterintuitively, that would help them, Um, uh, primarily because our food production system as it stands now is so harmful in in many respects, primarily through the... um, the, the cultivation of meat uh, and particularly beef, cattle. Uh, you're talking about a huge amount of deforestation, huge amount of air and uh, water pollution and uh, a, a major contributor towards climate change. Um, all of these things affect insects much like other wildlife. And so if you actually cut back on that uh, meat production and, and actually focus more of your efforts towards raising insects for food, that would actually... Um, surprisingly help insects Um, you could you know you can raise trillions of crickets for example in a shipping container with minimal environmental impact I mean there's certain startups in California I know who are 
producing cricket protein bars uh, for people to eat. Um, you know, they're a good source of protein and, and zinc and vitamins and so on. Um, and of course, in cultures around the world, um, you know, in, in Asia and Africa, they've been eating insects for generations. It's not this kind of weird, icky thing that uh, we, we, we often think about uh, it in um, the US and you know, European countries. So, yeah, I think it would be actually quite beneficial to, to shift towards um, eating insects um, for kind of health, climate, environmental reasons. And, um, yeah, ironically, to help insects themselves. Well, it's no surprise to you, I'm sure, that Californians are thinking a lot about climate change these days between the drought and the wildfires. But, you know, you, you also detail in this book how it's uh, uh, climate change is scrambling our seasons, and that has an effect on, on insects as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, spring is arriving about 20 days earlier in, in parts of the US than it, than it once was. Um, there was a study out last week, in fact, that found that um, uh, birds in the Chicago area are nesting about a month earlier than they did 100 years ago because of the shifting season. And that just uh, warps this whole procession of life that kind of unfurls as soon as spring starts so obviously we we've all been attuned to it we thought that it would never ever change um that you know the, the the flowers start budding you start getting more insects around the birds come for the insects um that that seemed like an immutable part of nature but we are uh, messing around with that due to our heating up of the planet so spring is arriving earlier which uh, confuses uh, insects and birds and and leads to many of their deaths because they're kind of arriving at the wrong time don't have anything to eat they can be caught with um frosts that can still occur in springtime uh, or you know late winter time so yeah climate change is a is a massive contributor towards uh, insect declines as well as other species of course uh, and it's a problem that's only really going to get worse before it gets better well, I, I so wish uh, we could have ended on a positive note. Uh, so I'll just encourage uh, listeners to pick up a copy of Oliver Millman's new book, The Insect Crisis, because it does include a number of strategies that you, me, everybody can take to try and get ahead of this uh, oncoming insect apocalypse. Oliver Millman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro. Ken Burns is next. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.